listening to Hotel Bar Sessions Podcast, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. You can find this podcast in all of our episode notes on Al Gore's internet at hotelbarpodcast.com. You can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast, where you'll find the Twitter handles of our co-hosts, Rick, Lee, and Jason, in the podcast Twitter bio. Hotel Bar Sessions is ad-free and listener-supported. To keep it that way, visit patreon.com backslash hotelbarsessions and sign up to be one of our podcast supporters. Welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions, everyone. My name is Lee Johnson, and as usual, I'm here with my co-host, Rick Lee and Jason Reed, and today our special guest, Michael Noss, who we have unconditionally welcomed to the podcast <laughs> to talk about hospitality. But before we do that, let's get some drink orders and some rants or raves from everyone. Jason, let's go to you first. What are you drinking, and what are you ranting or raving about today? I'm going to have a glass of Malbec, whatever they have by the glass, I trust the bar. And I'm going to be ranting about the fact that the nationalist, proto-fascist right is more internationally coordinated than the cosmopolitan left. The recent elections in Italy and Sweden have been another sad turn. And to see the way they're being celebrated here in the U.S. by people like Tucker Carlson and coordinated by people like Steve Bannon just makes me think the strange paradox that the right and their appeals to nationalism are in some sense doing a better job as a global organization than whatever left would oppose them. And that is just something I bemoan. And we need to fix that, guys. Let's just get on that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Rick, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about? The weather has turned toward fall here in Chicago. And so I'm going for my fall winter standby. I will have a Manhattan and I would like that with rye, please. Today, I'm raving about the jazz singer, Chris Connor. What I love about Chris Connor is not only does she have an amazing, beautiful voice, she reminds me a little bit of what Lee would sound like if she started singing jazz standards. (laughs) That'll never happen. Also, (laughs) I can't figure out why she chose a different name, because she was born Mary Jean Lautzenheiser. So... As Lee mentioned, we're joined today by Michael Noss. Michael is a professor of philosophy at DePaul University. I'm going to guess none of my other colleagues listen to this, so I will say that he is my favorite colleague. (laughs) Thank you, Rick. (laughs) Michael is universally known as the nicest human being in academic philosophy, one of the kindest and most generous people you ever want to meet, who is also wicked smart. (laughs) He's the author of many, many books dealing with the philosophy of Plato, the philosophy of Jacques Derrida. He, together with his wife, Pascaline Brol, has translated so many of Derrida's texts, and they've even edited a collection of Derrida's writings and speeches and other things that were offered at the time of the deaths of his friends. The English title of that is The Work of Mourning. 
Most recently, Michael is the author of Plato and the Invention of Life, published by Fordham University Press in 2018, and Derrida in Montreal, a play in three acts. We are so happy to welcome, if such a thing is possible, Michael <laughs> to the bar and to the podcast. So Michael, what are you drinking and are you ranting or raving? Well, thank you, Rick. Maybe if you have simple Cote du Rhone, that would be absolutely fine with me. I would love to rave today about a recently published seminar of the aforementioned Jacques Derrida that was originally held in Paris from 1995 to 1997 on the theme or on the question of hospitality. And it has just been published within the last year. It's an absolutely magnificent seminar on the theme of hospitality, but it's also, I think, a prime example of what a certain kind of continental philosophy is or can be at its very best. So, Lee, what about you? What are you drinking and are you ranting or raving? I think I'm going to have two fingers of the third most expensive bourbon that they have. <laughs> I was going to say second most expensive, but we're at a hotel bar and you never know what they got back there. I am raving today and I'm raving about classroom conversations that go totally off the rails. <laughs> I like to keep a pretty tight rein on my class, but sometimes you just got to let go when obviously the students are taking it in a place that you did not anticipate. And this happened to me just last week. We were teaching Kant's Metaphysics and Morals, and we were talking about the humanity formulation of the categorical imperative. And I had asked them for some examples of violations of that. And I expected the normal things, you know, slavery, coercion, deception. And instead, what I got was a story about Ron DeSantis sending immigrants to Martha's Vineyard. Wow. And it was actually an amazing conversation in which we found so many violations of <laughs> the categorical <laughs> imperative in one act by one man who I think we can all agree is, on Kant's terms, radically evil. So I am raving about those off-the-rails conversations in class today. I love, Lee, that within your rave, you put in my favorite rant about Governor DeSantis. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> well, Rick, I know we're talking about hospitality today, but how did you see this conversation going? Well, I think there are two popular ideas that don't really seem to go together so well. The first idea, and maybe it's from a bygone era, that we think about our ancestors and because they were frequently in battle or there were famines or they needed to look for water, that they had to move frequently around vast tracts of land. And for some, this was a regular part of their life. And if you're living in such a condition, the virtue of welcoming a guest would be prized among maybe all other virtues. Because one thinks tomorrow I might need this hospitality. Right. And so that leads me to provide it to someone who comes from elsewhere, to the stranger or to the traveler. But the second popular idea, I think, comes about with the rise of the nation state. We think each country has a right to what we call its territorial integrity. And therefore, each country decides who can be let in and who's not to be let in. And so at the rise of the nation state, many thinkers saw that hospitality was necessary or was a right because nation states couldn't coexist or at least not peacefully without allowing members of other countries to come in. 
But there also seems to be a personal or individual or even corporate relation to hospitality. Hotels, we say, are in the hospitality (laughs) industry, and people are always praised for being great hosts. We also say things when we welcome someone into our house like, make yourself at home, or even welcome. That is, we're saying something like, no matter how hard your journey was, no matter what struggles, you've come to a place where all will be well. And yet, we want to prevent those who are fleeing violence or climate disasters from coming into, quote, our country. So hospitality seems like a dicey business. Today, we're going to talk with Michael about this dicey business of hospitality. in that brief introduction I gave to this topic of hospitality, I talked about the ways in which early thinkers of international law and maybe even early societies thought that hospitality was either important or maybe for some of them actually just a right. But I'm wondering, like, what are the ways in which even saying welcome indicates that the one who I'm welcoming or the ones who are welcomed are othered? That is, they're other than me, they're strange, or they're foreign. Thanks, Rick. There's a lot to be said here. Since I'm talking about Derrida's seminar that has recently been published, let me just give you some idea of how he approaches these questions. Derrida comes at the questions that you're posing from a whole series of different angles. I mean, it is really pretty extraordinary. There is obviously a very strong philosophical component. Derrida talks about Plato's strangers, Nietzsche and the welcoming of the overman, There's a lot on Levinas. And then there's a great deal on Kant, and particularly perpetual peace. And that will, I think, link up with many of your questions about nation state. The seminar really just begins with philosophy. Philosophy is, of course, woven throughout. But there's literature. There's a very beautiful and complete reading of Sophocles' Oedipus at Colonus as a sort of prime example of Mm. hospitality in the ancient Greek world. There's a narrative by Labouillère. There's the reading of a somewhat perverted novel by Pierre Klosowski. There are biblical references, the story of Lot and his daughters. There are etymologies via Benveniste of words like hostess and xenos. And because it's a seminar, there are all kinds of things coming in on a weekly basis from the news, from laws that were being proposed in 1995, 1996, limiting the rights to immigration in France. In fact, a law that was actually being proposed that would make it a crime, a crime of hospitality, to put someone in an illegal status in your home. And then finally, there are personal anecdotes that Derrida brings in over the course of the weekly sessions that he gave. So there's all of that in the background. And I think I needed to say that in advance because the questions that you pose are questions that he comes at really from all of these directions. So you mentioned two different ways in which we think hospitality. The first one talked about the ways in which families are linked to one another through a kind of reciprocal hospitality, whereby one promises hospitality to someone in the expectation that someday hospitality will be given if need be to the person who offers it in the first place. And then you talked about a second notion of hospitality that comes in with the nation state. 
And I'm very glad that you emphasized that from the beginning, because it's very easy to imagine, I think, when, I don't know, an American philosophy student looks at the title of these seminars, Hospitality, Hospitality One, Hospitality Two, we who are so used to thinking of hospitality only in a personal setting, how and when to invite people over to your home, or in the setting that you mentioned, the hospitality industry, it's really important to remember that the notion of hospitality, and even under the name hospitality, for example, in Kant's Perpetual Peace, is in many ways a political question and has led to a whole discourse about cosmopolitan hospitality. So you're very right to want to emphasize those two aspects, the personal and familial on the one hand, and the more political nation-state related on the other. But then I come to your question. Your question is, how does one welcome another? And this is where Derrida introduces into his discourse an opposition that may seem initially a little bit forced, a little bit polar, but he's going to complicate it very, very quickly. It's the opposition between a conditional hospitality and an unconditional one. And I would say that the two kinds of hospitality you mentioned both fall on the side of a kind of conditional hospitality. Mm. So you mentioned, for example, someone offering hospitality with the expectation that that hospitality will be returned at some point. That expectation is a kind of condition. And in traditional thinkings of, let's say, Greek guest friendship or xenia, there was exactly that expectation of return. So a kind of conditional hospitality at the level of family lineage, at the level of tribes, at the level of perhaps even city-states within the ancient Greek world. But then you get to Kant. And this too is a kind of limited, conditional, law-governed hospitality. And so in Perpetual Peace, Kant lays out as a condition for a perpetual peace that will always remain on the horizon, something like a universal law of hospitality, whereby nation-states would offer hospitality to the citizens of other nation states through an international pact or agreement. And we can come back to the incredible advance that that may have been in Western political thought. But the first thing to note is that it is a limited hospitality, conditioned hospitality, because hospitality is offered only to citizens of other nation states. First of all, only to human beings, mm. but also to only human beings from other nation states. And so the whole question of offering hospitality to the stateless would be a huge problem for Kant. And then there are other conditions as well that are built into Kant's notion of a limited conditional law-bound hospitality. Opposes this notion of an unconditional hospitality, where one does not ask questions of the other. One welcomes them, in a certain sense, blindly, without calculation without the expectation of return. It's a kind of an economic as opposed to an economic hospitality. And so it would seem as if the real, authentic, genuine welcome corresponds to that second kind of hospitality, that absolute, unconditional, hyperbolic hospitality. And yet, Derrida is going to complicate that scenario throughout the entirety of the seminar. What I refer to as this kind of universalization, that is, I think I might need hospitality at some point, and therefore I should offer it to another. But then the next step of universalization is, therefore, everyone should offer it to everyone and so on. 
if there are conditions in each of those moments, then it's actually not so easily universalizable. Well, I think that's exactly right. I'm not sure that I would want to even use the word universalizable in the way that you were initially, because it is true that while Kant is talking about a kind of universal hospitality among peoples belonging to nation states, that excludes all kinds of people, as I mentioned a moment ago. It excludes the stateless. It excludes anything beyond the anthropocentric world. So yes, I'm not sure that universality is exactly the term we would be looking for here. What Derrida opposes to at least this, let's call it universalizing movement, is the singularity of the unconditional welcome. That's what's being opposed to the universalizing movement of hospitality that you can find to a certain extent in the conditional hospitality of, let's say, Kant's perpetual peace. It occurs to me that one of the conditions maybe unstated in a lot of hospitality is this idea that you can come and stay, but do not ask me to change. Right. And I think it's sort of an impossible condition because to have someone in your home, you're automatically going to act differently. You're going to clean things up. You're not going to walk around naked or, or whatever. <laughs> and it's going to change your home life. And to some extent, you know, even in the larger sense of the nation, where I think this idea of a condition, you can come, but you cannot change the way our nation looks, or our nation acts, etc. So there seems to be a condition of this idea of you're welcome so long as you ask me not to change. And I think this is also why the hospitality industry is such a bastardization because it's an industry. It's not anyone's home. So you're not putting anyone out by staying in a hotel. It's made to be stayed in. But I guess I'm thinking, is part of this idea of the condition and the unconditioned a question about the host and the host's own becoming other and the welcoming of someone else? Is that part of the condition or is that part of the unconditioned dimension of hospitality? Jason, I think you're exactly right. You mentioned the phrase, and Rick did as well, make yourself at home. Derrida talks about that as a fiction, as a kind of conditioning fiction. No one says to a guest, and really means it, make yourself at home. <laughs> There's always this, make yourself at home, but don't forget that it's my home. Right. In fact, slight anecdote, uh, there was an Algerian scholar that I was talking to not so long ago, and we were talking about that phrase in French, faites comme chez vous. She said, you know, there's another phrase in Algeria that one uses just as commonly as a joke, which is faites comme chez vous, mais restez pas trop longtemps. <laughs> so make yourself at home, but when are you leaving again? <laughs> because I think the sense is that you wish to invite the other into your home under your terms. I think, Jason, what you said is precisely right. There is no expectation that you, the host, will change as a result of that kind of invitation. On the other side, the invitation that is unconditional is precisely the opposite. It is precisely the possibility of a radical encounter that completely changes your life, for good or bad, could be traumatic. Levinas talks about the host becoming hostage to his or her guest. And Derrida works with that notion of host as hostage throughout the two years of the seminar. It's one of the phrases that he returns to over and over, the host as hostage. So yes, I think the expectation is that the host doesn't change. Um, and that's always a kind of hallmark of a conditional hospitality. Unconditional hospitality opens the subject up to the possibility of that radical change. Well, I think both Rick and Jason's questions are getting at something that has been implied in this conversation, but we haven't just stated directly, which is that unconditional hospitality is 
impossible. It's impossible in the universal sense. Like I quite literally can't host everyone. I don't have enough room in my house. I don't have enough food. I don't have enough time to host everyone. But it's also impossible in that second sense that Jason was asking for, namely, if my welcome is unconditional, if I say, make yourself at home, make my home as if it is your home, then I am no longer the host and therefore not extending hospitality anymore. That just the concept itself undoes itself. And I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about how this unconditional hospitality is not something that Derrida is so much forwarding as like an ought, this is what we ought Mm -hmm. to do, but rather forwarding as the conditions for the possibility of conditional hospitality, of any hospitality at all. Yeah, thank you, Lee. It's a really important question because some of this work from the seminars has been previously published. A little book called Of Hospitality was previously published. And it's possible on a very quick reading, and not an unjust reading, but a very quick reading, I think, of that text, to have assumed that unconditional hospitality is, as you said, sort of the ideal. Mm -hmm. In other words, it would be best if we could welcome the other unconditionally, open our doors to whoever comes. And of course, we always fall short of that. And it becomes very clear when you read the entire seminar that Derrida sees real dangers on both sides of this, not quite an opposition, but this polarity between conditional and unconditional hospitality. So it's not as if there is unconditional hospitality as the good hospitality and conditional hospitality (laughs) as the bad one. They, in a certain sense, are both necessary. Then the question is, how do we find, Derrida uses a Kantian language here, mediating schemata to go back and forth between conditional hospitality and unconditional hospitality, to mediate or to negotiate in a certain sense. I like to think, by the way, of this relationship as going back and forth across a kind of threshold between conditional and unconditional hospitality. But you asked about some of the dangers of unconditional hospitality. One is that it's no longer effective. One is no longer giving hospitality or offering hospitality to a determinate someone. Mm. It is blind. Mm. It is so blind. In a certain sense, it's mad. It's a mad hospitality. It therefore makes it impossible to determine this returns us to Jason's question as well. Who is the host and who is the guest? It undoes the very notion of hospitality itself. If everyone is welcome, no one is welcome. Exactly. No determinate one. Yeah. like this question is coming a little bit late, but it's precisely in this threshold, this crossing the threshold between the conditional and the unconditional, that I've now lost sight on the very meaning of hospitality. So I'm wondering, (laughs) could we get some, if not definition, because I understand that for Derrida, something like a definition might be complicated, but could we get on the table some specificity to what exactly we're talking about when we talk about hospitality? Sure. (laughs) Early on in the seminar, after having used words like to welcome, to receive, and indeed the word hospitality, Derrida admits on the very first day in November 1995, he says, you know what? We don't know what we're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I start all my classes, too. We don't know what we're talking about. And yet, 
He will have been speaking in French, using French words that are recognizable within a lexicon of hospitality. He had been for an hour using those words before saying, we don't know exactly what we're Mm. saying. So one way of coming at the question, Rick, I think, is to think about these two different kinds of hospitality. Let's start with the unconditional. On the one hand, hospitality has to do with something like a welcoming of the other beyond economy and without condition. Because if hospitality were reduced to welcoming another into your home, into your city state, only on certain conditions, then it begins to look like I don't know, like commerce. It looks like the hospitality industry. (laughs) Or the hospitality industry, exactly. Or recruitment. It doesn't look like hospitality. And so I think one of Derrida's insights is that there's a core of even conditional hospitality that must be animated by this notion of an unconditional hospitality, of a welcoming beyond the commercial. And yet, to go back on the other side of the threshold, in order to welcome determinate someones and, and not just some anonymous anyone, Certain conditions need to be established. So what is hospitality? Well, somehow the term itself, the very understanding of the concept itself, will have to be understood in terms of this negotiation between an unconditional opening of this term, let's say, to future reinscription, unconditional notion of the concept itself, and its prior inscriptions within a philosophical tradition, within a series of laws and mores that condition hospitality within families, city-states, nation-states, and so on. So I can't give you a better definition than that. It's got to be a relationship between these two kinds of hospitality. Not to go back to Kant, but to go back to Kant, why is this not a regulative ideal? Well, I don't think it's a regulative ideal in so far as the Unconditional hospitality is not something like a telos. Mm. It's not something that we can aim for and come closer to. There's always a kind of, well, Derrida will use the word perfectibility. Right. So that brings it close to what looks like a Kantian ideal, a kind of perfectibility of hospitality. But he always, always suggests that that perfectibility needs to be thought in relationship to an intrinsic pervertibility. There's never a sense that the arc of history is moving towards more and more inclusive, hospitable relationships between nation states or between individuals. See Jason's rant from this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Things can always get a lot worse. One of the reasons why it couldn't be what Kant would call a regulative ideal, so something that is not achievable, but it's regulative in that it orders my actions and what I do toward Mm -hmm. it, But one of the reasons unconditional hospitality might fail is because not only is unconditional hospitality the condition for conditional hospitality, but it works also in reverse. And now I'm picking up this thing you said about singularity before, Michael, that if unconditional hospitality is marked by this singular, I welcome you. I don't welcome the other. I welcome you. There is a kind of limitation there, a necessary limitation, because if I don't welcome you, then I'm not offering hospitality. And so there is a way in which then the conditioned hospitality is also a condition for unconditional hospitality. And so the fact that these go back and forth means that one of them can't be chosen as the regulative ideal for the other. I think that's exactly right. I think you said it beautifully. And that's why the relationship between these two, I mean, Derrida talks about an aporia or an antinomy 
or a non-dialectical relationship between these two. He uses all kinds of different language in order to characterize the relationship between these two. But you're exactly right to say that one of them doesn't remain the goal that the other tries to approximate. They both need to remain in play, and that's the difficulty. And it also means there is no end either in practice or in theory to the Mm. negotiation Mm. between the two. And I think that's what Derrida considers ethics to be and responsibility to be. Yeah, another term that he uses for concepts like this, like hospitality, like forgiveness, is an undecidable. And that really captures this play and interdependence between both the unconditional impossible and the conditioned possible. Absolutely. That's right. And maybe just one word about the dangers on both sides. I mean, the dangers of conditional hospitality are obvious. In other words, by setting conditions on those I let into my house, my city-state, my nation-state, you can imagine the dangers. The dangers are that I only let in those who will treat my house like I treat my house, to go back to Jason's claim. Or I only let in people that look like me, that sound like me, that reflect me in some ways. A kind of narcissistic hospitality would be one way of understanding conditional hospitality. So it's pretty obvious the danger of that. What is the danger of unconditional hospitality? Well, one danger is that by not identifying the other as, let's say, a foreigner who could be potentially my political enemy or someone outside my city-state, my nation-state, by not identifying them, Derrida says in a couple of enigmatic places that this relationship is unconditional welcoming of another can be a relationship of love that turns into the worst and most heinous hatred, the most egregious form of xenophobia. So in a certain sense, in order to prevent that kind of perversion of hospitality, law is required in order to regulate that potential love turning to hate and xenophobia. So in talking about this relation between the conditioned and unconditional, it occurred to me that the beginning of the show in the rant concealed within Lee's rave, we talked about Ron DeSantis and the flying of immigrants to Martha's Vineyard. And one of the things about that is the next day, you know, some were sent off the island ostensibly to get access to the services they would need, right? There's no immigration office on Martha's Vineyard. There's not really much to offer anyone there. And this was exploited by the right as like, oh, look at these hypocrites. They're sending away the very migrants. But I think this ties into the fact that there is a certain way in which Sometimes to be unconditional, you have to be able to say to someone, you can stay, but you can't stay here. That the resources available here in this place are not going to be enough, but in order to welcome you, we have to move you someplace else or we have to change where you can be welcomed. And I don't know. It just, it just struck me as an interesting way to think about the conditioned and the unconditioned aspects that sometimes part of the condition is recognizing the limitations of your own resources that you have to offer to truly welcome someone. You can't just pretend like those limitations don't exist. You know, just a couple of thoughts in relationship to what you said. It is interesting, the DeSantis example, it's not the first example in the history of the world where immigrants have been used, have been weaponized, is the term we sometimes use, to score political points. That, I think we would all agree, there's something really quite reprehensible about that kind of weaponizing of immigrants and questions of immigration. At a certain point in the seminar, Derrida talks about Arendt's origins of totalitarianism. And one of the points that Arendt makes is that between the two wars, there were so many displaced and homeless people 
that the old alternative between naturalizing people and repatriating them to their homelands simply became impossible. That alternative broke down. And so I think you're exactly right to think that there need to be new modalities for dealing with people in seeking asylum, seeking refuge of various kinds, economic or political, beyond that alternative of naturalization, we call it path to citizenship, or repatriation. And of course, repatriation is oftentimes even impossible because people are coming from states that have dissolved. So we may need to think much differently in terms of offering a stay, a sojourn without necessarily naturalization. And, you know, that goes back to Kant as well. Another limiting condition of Kant's perpetual peace is that one has the right to stay, to sojourn in a foreign country, but not their right to citizenship. So I think you're right to want to point to different kinds of ways of negotiating these very tricky and difficult issues, especially when resources are limited. The flip side of this emerges, I think, already in the debates that many people are familiar with that took place primarily in Spain about the Spanish right and also responsibilities toward those people they encountered in the so-called New World. If they're not Christian, are they persons? Are they even human? Are they rational? And so on. But one contribution to this by the philosopher Vittoria is he invokes precisely hospitality as a problem. So he insists that, of course, these are humans. Of course, they have their own rights. They have organized nations or something like nations. They are rational. But we have a right to hospitality. And if they refuse it, then we have the right to enforce it by force. What's interesting is that one of the conditions he gives for hospitality is commerce. If they're not willing to engage in commerce with us, then that is a clear sign that they are not offering hospitality to which we have a right. The one demanding hospitality is now recognizing there are conditions. When you violate those conditions, I'm coming in with guns. It's funny that I can't recall a single moment in the seminar that I'm talking about where Derrida takes up the question from that perspective, a kind of demand of hospitality Mm. from the other. It's usually hospitality comes from the other direction. It's either an invitation or it's a request on the part of someone seeking a sojourn or seeking to be harbored or seeking refuge or asylum. It seems an odd thing to demand others to give you hospitality. It is the case that in Kant, of course, there is a pact, a mutual recognized pact, where one is mutually obligated to offer hospitality. But it seems like an odd demand. I don't know the text you're talking about, Rick, but one would have to suspect, at least I would suspect a kind of, not illegitimate use of the word hospitality, but something like hospitality being used as an alibi for in this text <laughs> in order to have one's way with the people that were colonized. I want to push back on this a little bit because I think that we are seeing very similar examples at our borders right now. So we have immigration laws that permit, for example, people to apply for refuge, asylum, or citizenship at our borders, and that the laws are routinely being undermined or our duties are not being filled by our own agents of state. And so I think that you could easily imagine, I mean, this is obviously an overly dramatic example, but someone coming to the border 
and saying, I know the laws of your home, right? I know that you have an obligation to extend hospitality. I am a stranger. I demand to be let in, right? I demand to be welcomed. I demand some kind of refuge or asylum. Now, obviously, that's a different story when we're talking about actual immigration laws than when we're talking about things like asylum seekers, you know, where we just have a human obligation, you would think. And I understand already that Derrida is not setting up hospitality as a duty, but we do have a human obligation to offer asylum to those in need. But it does seem to me that is an example of what you were just saying Derrida doesn't take up, namely the demand for hospitality. Right. I think only from the perspective Rick was talking about, in other words, demanding of the other that they offer hospitality. And I think, first of all, that they even accept the term hospitality. I assume that that was what was at issue as well. In other words, accepting the entire matrix of hospitality that was being foisted upon them. You're exactly right, Lee, that Derrida wants to make it very clear that hospitality can't be offered out of a sense of duty. It has to be a kind of response to a request rather than a response to an ethical duty that one has determined. But why wouldn't you call that request a demand? If someone is standing at my door and they're hungry, they're in danger, they're exhausted, they need shelter, and they say, can I come in? (laughs) Why could I not just as easily describe that request as a demand? Well, I suppose you could. You could understand that as a kind of demand. So it's a demand of a particular granting of hospitality that the host would recognize. So I was talking about a situation where one demands that one recognize a form of hospitality before even offering it. In this particular case, I think you're right. So we would have a host who recognizes what hospitality is. He or she assumes that he has the right to offer it or not. And then the demand is recognizable to the host. And the host then decides whether or not to accede to that demand or not. That's a way of understanding what we've been calling conditional hospitality throughout. Just to be clear, I don't think that the demand is a demand for hospitality. I think the demand is a demand to make a decision whether to be hospitable or not. That's what the person at my door is demanding, a decision. They're not demanding to be let inside. It was interestingly when you referred to this as duty because I suddenly realized that I had been thinking in the language of rights or in the concept of rights. And clearly, if I have a right, then I can demand that my right be recognized, my right be fulfilled. Duty is something slightly different than right, for sure. And I can't ever demand you fulfill your duty, but I think you're right, Lee. What I can demand is that you recognize it's a duty and you're not going to fulfill it in this moment. And so I think rights and duties have different structures in this relation to a demand. In this case, though, we're not talking about either rights or duties. And this is, I think, absolutely central to Derrida when he's talking about this particular kind of family of concepts, hospitality, forgiveness, maybe some other things, friendship, democracy, maybe fall under all of these required decisions. And what I'm trying to say is that we could describe the confrontation with that decision as the world or an other 
making a demand, but the demand is not for forgiveness, for friendship, for hospitality. The demand is for a decision. And that's, of course, when we see the whole interplay of the conditional and the unconditional and the undecidable that nevertheless requires a decision in the moment. So what you said at the end there makes perfect sense, Lee, the undecidable that requires a decision. That would suggest that decision has to be thought according to two valences here. On the one hand, the decision is something that gets decided, gets decided in a certain sense in spite of me, on the side of a kind of unconditional hospitality where it is decided that I open the door, that I grant hospitality. On the other hand, because that unconditional hospitality and that, let's say, passive decision is always negotiating with, again, the conditional hospitality, one would imagine that that moment of having a decision be decided happens within a decision-making process or at the end of a decision-making process where I reasoned, calculated, this is my home, I can accept only so many at this time for these reasons. So in other words, a decision based upon reasons. So a decision based upon reasons as opposed to a decision that gets decided despite me. Right. And unlike a right, which can be honored or dishonored or a duty, which can be fulfilled or not fulfilled here, when we're talking about hospitality, the stranger at the door has a need, but the decision is not to meet the need or deny the need to fulfill the need or fail to fulfill the need. The decision is simply is the host going to be hospitable or not going to be hospitable? And that's where I think that your emphasis on the question of hospitality staying in that threshold is very important, that threshold of the decision, that threshold of the door. I would just simply add that there may be an aspect of a kind of passive decision that would precede the moment where I decide whether I'm offering hospitality. In other words, the moment when I hear a knock at the door and simply respond to it that is already a kind of passive decision. Now, what happens as a result of that? It's a kind of affirmation already in hearing the knock at the door. And then what could follow from that kind of hospitable decision to open the door could be to let someone in or not. It could be affirmation or negation. But it could be preceded mm-hmm. by a kind of affirmative moment where one recognizes at some level that a request is being made. It seems like one thing that, as Rick suggested at the beginning of the show, has been used to sort of guide that decision or even calculate in the way that Derrida will use that word has been a certain idea of a kind of reversibility, right? There, but for the grace of God, go I. This could happen to me. I could find myself without a home, without a place to stay, and I would be asking someone else. Now, I think one of the real limitations of that way of thinking is that when people do not or have not considered themselves in that manner, see themselves as very secure and not needing others, they might say, why should I welcome someone else in? This is never going to happen to me. And that's the real limitation of that. And I think that is some of what's going on politically. But I, I want to suggest, and this is pushing in a different direction, because I do think that part of this question of hospitality is a kind of liminal concept between ethics and politics. And I want to suggest another way of thinking about welcoming the other and This is suggested by Etienne Balibar in his recent collection of essays on cosmopolitics, where he says every cosmopolitan ideal has to be figured in relation to what he calls actually existing cosmopolitanism. And and by that, he means the actually existing world market, world order, the connection we all have under global warming and the Anthropocene, all of that. So on that view, everyone who comes to my door, even though they might seem foreign and alien to me, they're part of a world that I'm part of as well. 
And chances are their conditions, like if they're environmental refugees, their conditions are the same conditions that make my life possible. They are being displaced because I get to drive around in a car and fly in airplanes, or they're being displaced because the political conflict might be the political conflict that has something to do with my conditions of existence in terms of oil, in terms of other resources. So I guess suggesting the idea that not so much the interchangeability, there, but for the grace of God go I, but that the stranger is actually someone who is a stranger to me, but they're part of the world that I bear some responsibility for. And I need to welcome them in because I'm part of that world. There's really no one on this planet whose conditions are disconnected from mine because my life conditions, especially when we start talking about fossil fuel use and so on, shape and change the entire planet. Yes, I couldn't agree more. You know, there does some in our talks, I mentioned Arendt's Origins of Totalitarianism. It's one of the texts that he turns to throughout the seminar. And it's not insignificant, I think, Origins of Totalitarianism is in many ways about conditions that are the result of world war. Now, it was a war in Europe, but nonetheless, a war that was felt in many places across the world, and it was called a world war. So Derrida, I think, is very much with our rent in this to see that the crises of immigration will be a worldwide phenomenon. So move from our rent between the wars to 1995-96, when there were literally millions of refugees from the former Yugoslavia who were knocking on doors throughout Europe, knocking on particular nation-state doors. But since this is 1995-96, after the European Union, knocking especially on the door of Europe itself. So already a way of thinking hospitality slightly beyond the nation state. Now, as far as I know, Derrida did not consider the question of climate change or the climate crisis to any great degree. It was not something that he devoted text to. But had he done so, I think he would have said something quite similar to what you were suggesting, Jason. That one thing we know is that if all wars were to, for some miraculous reason, stop right now and there were no refugees as a result of wars, I think we can be absolutely certain that there will be tens of millions of refugees as a result of climate change across the world. He would probably be the first to remind us that those refugees will be from certain countries in general rather than others. And so certain countries and certain peoples will be more afflicted rather than others. But you're right to suggest that climate change is going to be an issue that in a certain sense will, I'm not sure if it will bring the world together, but it certainly is a world problem. It will force a decision for sure. Yes. I like about the way this conversation has been going is that we seem to be stressing that the challenge here is how to make ourselves, how to make the world more hospitable instead of less hospitable and not, as we said in the beginning, how do we all become unconditionally hospitable, which is, of course, impossible. And I think we see more and more, obviously, examples of people who seem committed to making the world less hospitable. The most obvious example, groups like the Proud Boys, right, who literally go and stand outside of gay bars and abortion clinics and at the border, brandishing weapons and threatening anyone who might extend hospitality to the people that the Proud Boys are against. 
So obviously we don't want to go in that direction, right? We want to go in the more hospitable direction. But when we start talking about making the world more hospitable, we're going to have to talk about hospitable to things other than human beings. This could mean non-human animals. This could mean natural entities. I personally would like to talk about how this could mean machine intelligences. I mean, it could mean aliens or extraterrestrial life. And then we run into a whole nother knot of problems. Namely, we don't share a language with these entities. We don't, well, we do with machine intelligences, but we don't share a language with many of these entities. We don't know what their needs are. We don't have a way of understanding what the knock at the door sounds like from them. And so how would you describe becoming more hospitable to strangers like these? Wow, that's a terrific and incredibly difficult question. The seminar that I'm talking about here really just makes an introduction to that or foray towards answering that question. Mm -hmm. Because Derrida will emphasize in several places the fact that most of our conceptions of hospitality, including and perhaps especially conceptual peace, is anthropocentric. It's only offered to human beings, apart from the question of it being offered only to citizens from nation states and so on. So only to human beings. And so Derrida does ask, well, what about hospitality to animals? What about hospitality to plants? What about hospitality to gods? And, you know, that might seem like a kind of anthropological question from the past, but not really. Derrida cites at a certain point one of his colleagues at the École des Hautes Etudes, Charles Malamud, a scholar of Indian religions. And he said that in certain parts of India, whenever a guest comes into your home, he or she is coming as a god. While that might seem a bit hard to translate into contemporary, let's say, France, the United States, just think about the fact that when we allow people to emigrate into our nation states, they come usually with their religion, which is to say with their gods, with their religious practices. And that may or may not be something that we are so willing to accept in terms of what those practices are. So it's interesting. Human beings, animals, plants, gods. Derrida, as far as I can tell, never extends the net beyond living beings, assuming that gods are living beings. So he doesn't go as far as hospitality to inanimate beings. I'm, I'm not sure why. I'm not sure what that kind of hospitality would look like, but he does not. It's always a, a living being. I'm not sure what to do about artificial intelligence, and you probably would be better situated to offer some advice here. But there's no movements in that direction in the seminar. But there is, and this is what's interesting about a seminar as opposed to a book, mm -hmm. in the midst of a seminar, certain things in the news mm -hmm. can happen. And so during the second year of the hospitality seminar, the birth of the cow, cow or sheep, sorry, the sheep named Dolly was announced in Scotland, I believe. Dolly was born, I think, back in November yeah. or December. Yeah, there was a major moral panic. Exactly. That's, that's <laughs> right. Exactly. And so Derrida does have a few comments about cloning. He calls it a kind of phantasmatic fear on the part of those who were against it. Uh, he doesn't say a lot about it, but my sense is that he finds it to be a phantasmatic fear because any two living beings in time will be different as a result of their being in time. So he suggests that we shouldn't have such a fear. Artificial intelligence is something else. I'm not sure where to begin with that. But it seems to me we already have some of the tools for a direction in this, because 
if, as you have been saying, Michael, conditional hospitality has as one of its conditions unconditional hospitality, part of what cannot be conditioned is the otherness of the other. It can't be a human other. It can't be a living other. So the otherness of the other has to also be unconditioned in unconditional hospitality. And to that extent, an AI so radically other than us in ways we can't even imagine or reason our way to, we would have to think about the hospitality we're extending to them on the basis of, as it were, perfecting our conditional hospitality. And there should then be a welcoming gesture laid out. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that, again, if the move of Derrida's work, and it does seem to me that this is the case, is to always try to move towards, as Rick said, the perfectibility of hospitality, more hospitality, and not the pervertibility of hospitality, less hospitality, then all of these figures that we've been talking about, whether they're clones or machine intelligences or non-human animals, or even just people who speak a different language than I speak, it has to be that the hospitable move is always going to err on the side of more hospitality and not less hospitality. You know, I can't disagree. I mean, that really does seem to be the direction of Derrida's thought. And yet it's curious that he limits, seems to limit at least hospitality to living beings. Rick, you mentioned very kindly that collection that I did with Pascalon called The Work of Mourning or Chaque fois unique la fin du monde. That phrase, each time uniquely the end of the world. Derrida, again, similarly talks about the death of the other, the living other, as the end of the world. And he extends it far beyond the human but he doesn't extend it to, as far as I can tell, inanimate or non-living beings. So he's consistent on that score, though I recognize the claim you're both making, that we would seem to want, in order for Derrida to be consistent with himself in this ever-expanding notion of hospitality, to move beyond even the living to these other forms of non-human or even other kinds of non-life. Yeah, and he's pretty limited in his considerations of living things as well. I mean, for example, you don't hear him saying we should extend hospitality to viruses. I mean, we are, of course, right now living in the midst of the COVID pandemic, and there are many, many ways in which, and I'm not advocating this, (laughs) but there are many ways in which if our species extended hospitality to this virus, even if it meant it almost certainly would, the eradication of the human species, that would, in fact, preserve the world, the world in the sense of the natural world. I'm not making this argument, but it wouldn't be difficult to make an argument that the extension of hospitality to viruses that, for whatever reason, are going to wipe us out is something that we also ought to consider, that we're not the only living thing on this planet. And in fact, our extinction might actually be exactly the kind of hospitality that we say, you know, make my home as if it's your home, which is going to eradicate me altogether. (laughs) Yes, I completely agree. If hospitality does not necessarily require that active decision that we talked about earlier, but a different kind of taking place, one could say that we have been incredibly hospitable to this virus already. <laughs> and, and we could say that it was able to spread so incredibly quickly across the world within months, precisely because of our 
hospitable, gregarious nature. Yeah. We were traveling, shaking hands, kissing across the world, and, and within months it had touched most of the four corners of the world. Yeah, and that really does bring us back to the point that I feel like you were making at the beginning, which is that there always has to be a decision, and sometimes the decision will be to not be hospitable. And that's why this is not simply a duty or regulative ideal or a right. This is something that requires a certain amount of prudence and discretion when we decide to open the door or not. Absolutely. One of the conditions for our being welcomed into the bar is that there are limits on it. And one of those limits is last call. So unfortunately, <laughs> last call has been issued. And while we're waiting for our last drinks, let me just remind the listener that you could extend some hospitality to us by supporting us on our Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions. We really appreciate your extending the kindness of strangers to us. With that said, Michael, do you have a final thought? I just want to thank you for your hospitality. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> One thing that we didn't talk about is the way in which technology has changed hospitality. The entire way of thinking hospitality has been inflected by the kinds of virtual media we're all familiar with. And, and I must say, this has been an incredible pleasure, but I felt a certain trepidation, to be honest, coming into your virtual home <laughs> this morning. And it's interesting. I mean, I don't think you own the internet any more than I do, but a kind of space of propriety and a space of hospitality was established. And I'm very happy that you invited me. I was happy to walk over the threshold and join you here. Well, make sure you put your towels in the hamper before you leave. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. I'm going to call a cab and it looks like we are out of here. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.